Well then, you'll say, if simplified grammar is out, and slow-paced sentences are out, and limited vocabulary is out, how can we simplify our prose style? How does anyone achieve plain talk anyhow? For strange as it may seem to you at this point, people talk plainly as long as they don't think about it. In conversation without rehearsal or preparation, they somehow manage to express themselves so clearly that nobody asks for an explanation. How do they do it? The solution to this puzzle is easy. They use big words and a fast pace and the ordinary rules of grammar, but they give the other fellow time to understand. They pause between sentences, they repeat themselves, they use filler words between the big important ones, they space their ideas. The secret of plain talk is in between space. That sounds simple, in fact, it is simple. Everyone does it every day. But when it comes to writing or to formal speaking, We forget about the in-between space. It doesn't seem right to fill pages with filler words or repetition and that sort of thing doesn't go with oratory. So we compress and condense. We make one word out of three and leave out ten more that seem irrelevant. They are irrelevant, but without them, your reader or listener has no time to understand the relevant words. You have to use small talk in between if you want your big talk to go over. What you say may be clear for anybody with average intelligence, but don't forget that you force that average intelligent man to make an effort to follow you. Maybe he has other things in his mind, Maybe he is tired, or maybe he simply is not interested enough to make that effort. If you fill in space, you won't add anything to what you say, but you will put your audience at ease. It seems almost impossible to illustrate this point. No writer describes conversation as it really is, and we don't take shorthand notes of what we say to each other in our living rooms or in our porches, but it is necessary for the purpose of this book that you get an exact idea of colloquial prose. So I reprint here two rather long pieces that are as accurate to reproductions of conversations as can be found. They're not perfect, but I hope they will give you the right idea. The first excerpt is from a story by Dorothy Parker entitled, Too Bad. Two gossiping women serve as a sort of Greek chorus, interpreting the story to the reader, and Dorothy Parker is remarkably successful in making gossip sound like gossip. Here's the excerpt. My dear, Mrs. Ames said to Mrs. Marshall, don't you really think that there must have been some other woman? Oh, I simply couldn't think it was anything like that, said Mrs. Marshall. Not Ernest Walden, so devoted, 
home every night at half past six in such good company and so jolly and all. I don't see how there could have been. Sometimes, observed Mrs. Ames, those awfully jolly men at home are just the kind. Yes, I know, Mrs. Marshall said, but not Ernest Walden. Why, I used to say to Jim, I never saw such a devoted husband in my life, I said. Oh, not Ernest Walden. I don't suppose, began Mrs. Ames and hesitated. I don't suppose, she went on, intently pressing the bit of sodden lemon in her cup with her teaspoon that grace that there was ever anyone or anything like that. Oh, heavens no, cried Mrs. Marshall. Grace Walden just gave her whole life to that man. It was Ernest, his, his, rather, it was Ernest this and Ernest that every minute. I simply can't understand it. If there was one earthly reason, if they ever fought, or if Ernest drank or anything like that, but they got along so beautifully together, why, it just seems as if they must have been crazy to go and do a thing like this. Well, I can't begin to tell you how blue it's made me. It seems so awful. Yes, said Mrs. Ames. It certainly is too bad. The other bit of conversation is not... That's the end of that uh, excerpt. The other bit of conversation is not gossip, but talk about current affairs between men. And it is not fictional, but real. It is from a transcript of the People's Platform, a radio discussion program in the form of an overheard dinner table conversation. These broadcasts are unrehearsed and spontaneous. I think the transcripts are the nearest thing to actual conversation shorthand notes that can be found. Of course, the broadcast dinner guests know they are on the air, but they talk to each other and not to their audience. This particular program was about Russia. The chairman was Lyman Bryson, the guests Walter Durante, Louis Fisher, and Max Lerner. Listen, Fisher said. Of course, when Churchill and Roosevelt met, rather meet, they inevitably discussed the Pacific, which is such an important phase of the whole war. But, Bryson said, and to Russia also? Fisher, and to Russia, of course. But the Russians have been invited to previous conferences where the Pacific was also discussed. But they were not invited to this conference, and I think they are not invited to this conference because Russia is being discussed in terms of Russian demands, and the Russians want to know the answers. Lerner, I don't know, Bryson, whether Fisher or Durante, which of them is correct about this, but there's one observation I'd like to make about the whole thing, and that is this seems to indicate what it is to me the most serious problem in the relations of the Allies. And that is, America and Britain are always meeting about something, and Russia isn't meeting with them. There seems to have been developing a rift between, rather, within the United Nations. We are becoming almost a house divided against itself. At least there is a danger that we may become a house divided, or 
Fisher. Well, isn't it true, Lerner, that Stalin has been invited several times and has not seen fit or not been able to come? Lerner. I don't know, Fisher. I've been told that. Fisher. Well, we have been told that officially, and Roosevelt said only the other day at his press conference that he would have been glad to meet Stalin. Lerner. Well, may I just say this and that that is just this morning we had reports of an editorial published in a Russian semi-official magazine asking for a meeting of the three powers. Now, it's very difficult to reconcile that with the statement that Stalin had repeatedly been invited to such a meeting and had not taken part. Fisher. Oh, he might have refused it in the past and seized the wisdom of it now. Lerner. That's possible. Durante. Yes, while you speak, Lerner, of a rift between Russia and the Western powers, has it grown up recently? Isn't it really more true that there has been concealed distrust and misunderstanding between Russia and the Western democracies ever since the foundation of the Soviet Republic? And that actually today we are merely witnessing a progression of that and a continuation of it. And what's more, Lerner, it's getting worse. Durante, I say it's not getting much better because in many ways the situation is acute. For instance, this very question of the second front and other questions, I think on the whole, it is probably getting better, but in a sense, sharper at this time. And that, after all, many people in Germany and outside Germany have an interest in extending this squabble or pretending it is a quarrel where it is not, perhaps even somewhat unconsciously. Learner. Yes, because I agree, Durante, that this distrust is an old thing. And one of the interesting things is that this distrust has not been destroyed by Russian bravery and Russian military accomplishment and by our operating with the Russians, our least lend. Distrust is rarely destroyed between nations. And it seems to be really rechanneled. It's now seeking underground, subterranean methods of showing itself in an enormous amount of rumor-mongering in both sides and the suspicions that the Russians have of us in our tendency as I say, to act with the British, but not to act with the Russians, so that I would suggest that one of the things for us as Americans, us Americans, to think about is what can we do to, well, shall we say, destroy this distrust on our side? Fisher, well, I think we can. The first thing we can do is to try to understand why it is sharper today, as Durante says, than it has been throughout Soviet history. And I think that the, that the reason is, lies in the nature of this war. Now, that's the end of that um, excerpt. Now, if you read these two conversations, pieces carefully, you'll notice how the speakers make themselves understood. They repeat phrases. I don't suppose, I don't suppose, they were not invited to this conference, and I think they were not invited to this conference because they correct themselves. That grace, that there was ever anyone, whether Fisher or Durante, which of them is correct, 
The reason is, lies in the nature of this war. They repeat ideas in different words. A progression of that and a continuation of it are cooperating with the Russians, our Leesland. They even contradict their own statements. I say it's not getting much better. I think on the whole it is probably getting better. Sometimes the speakers use sentences of Chinese simplicity. It was earnest this and earnest that every minute. America and Britain are always meeting about something and Russia isn't meeting with them. At other times, they use old-fashioned, slow-moving sentences, but with the difference that they don't say them in one breath, but break them into pieces. Quote, If there was one earthly reason, if they ever fought or if Ernest drank or anything like that, but they got along so beautifully together. Just this morning, we had reports of an editorial published in a Russian semi-official magazine asking for a meeting of the three powers. Now, it's very difficult to reconcile that with the statement that Stalin had repeatedly been invited to such a meeting and had not taken part. Unquote. Important key words are being used where they seem necessary, but always with some illustration or rephrasing to drive the point home. Quote, so devoted, home every night at a half past six, in such a good company and so jolly and all. Unquote. A rift between the United Nations. We're becoming almost a house divided against itself. It seems to be really channeled. It is now seeking underground subterranean methods of showing itself. Unquote. Everything is put in a person's in personal terms. Quote, why I used to say to Jim, I can't begin to tell you how blue it's made me. What it is, what is to me the most serious problem? We have been told that. I would suggest that one of the things for us as Americans, us Americans to think about. Unquote. Filler words are freely strewn about. Oh, yes, why? Heavens, no, well, of course, that is, well, now, oh, yes, I say, I think, well, shall we say, well. And finally, there is one element you can't see on the printed page. Between the words and with them, there are gestures and looks and intonations and pauses and silences. So here we have the secret of plain conversational talk. It is not difficult ideas expressed in easy language. It is rather abstractions embedded in small talk. It is heavy stuff packed with excelsior. If you want to be better understood, you don't have to leave out or change your important ideas. You just use more excelsior. It's as simple as that. Exercise. Translate the following passage into conversational talk, as if it were spoken across a dinner table. Be sure to use all the ideas that are there, but provide space between them. Do not add any new ideas of your own. Here's the quote. Perhaps the toughest job of thinking we have to do in this matter of European reconstruction 
is to realize that it can be achieved through non-political instrumentalities. Reconstruction will not be politics. It will be engineering. It will be possible to operate Europe's primary economic, economic plant directly, not through political controls. It is possible to make bargains with cartels and trusts with trade unions and cooperatives, with farm unions and professional societies, without sending a single démarché through a foreign ministry or memorandum through a Department of the Interior. For a year or more after the First World War, many cities and districts in Central and Eastern Europe provided for their immediate needs, while their paper governments issued decrees and proclamations that meant exactly nothing. So long as food can be procured, politicians are expendable, and so long as the commission can provide the minimum supplies needed to sustain local life, it can make trains run, and ships sail, and oil wells spout, and factory chimneys smoke. Why it will often have to deal directly with non-political bodies should be fairly clear. Unless a totalitarian police power is to administer everything, and it is unthinkable that our armies should provide and subsidize such forces, there can be in the more chaotic parts of Europe no responsible and effective national political authority for a long time. Unquote. As a sample, here is my own conversational version of the artist's paragraph, or the first paragraph. Quote, well, there is quite a tough job ahead, the toughest of them all, I think, as far as this matter of Europe and European reconstruction is concerned. Yes, the toughest job we have to do in this whole matter, and it's a job of thinking, of realizing how it can be done, how it will be done, and I should say, it will be done somehow, but not by politics. No, reconstruction in Europe won't be like politics at all. What I mean is this, it will be non-political, non-political bodies and agencies and bureau, bureaus will be an engineering job, like building a bridge. That's the way I look at it, no politics whatsoever, mind you, just plain non-political engineering. Yes, that's the way you have to realize, to visualize this reconstruction job. Now, do the rest of the passage in the same manner.